Hello and welcome back to Leader Up, a podcast of Army Management Staff College. Leader Up is a professional conversation where we discuss a broad range of leadership and leader development topics with an emphasis on the Army civilian profession. I'm your host, David Howie. On today's episode of Leader Up, we've got a very special guest. We've got a great guest, and I know folks out there in the Leader Up audience are going to be interested to hear what she has to say. Uh, I'm happy to introduce Ms. Kate Kelly. She is a member of the Senior Executive Service, and she is the Chief Human Capital Officer at Army Futures Command. And we're going to talk to her today about Army Futures Command and about some other leadership and leader development topics as they relate to us as part of the Army Civilian Corps. So, Ms. Kate Kelly, welcome to Leader Up, and thank you so much for being here with us today. David, thank you. This is a a real treat for me and always exciting when I get to speak to audiences such as this. So thank you so much for having me, and I very much look forward to the discussion. Okay, well, thank you. We, I know, I know, uh, on behalf of our Leader Up audience, we all appreciate your, uh, you giving giving us your time. So let's just start big picture with uh, Army Futures Command. Tell our leadership audience what Army Futures Command is. Certainly, it's probably one of the most exciting places to be in the Army. First and foremost, it's really at the intersection of today's army and what tomorrow's army needs to be and needs to look like and needs to operate with. And so Army Futures Command is also probably the biggest wholesale change in army structure since about the 1970s. A new four-star command, which is significant in and of itself, but the fact that the army hasn't really task organized at that level so holistically in so many years makes it a fairly significant evolution in the thinking of the Army. And Army Futures Command is charged with several things, but if I had to distill the primary focus and functionality of the command, it really is about somebody thinking and driving towards the future state that we need our Army to be in. And so much of the rest of the Army is really focused on being ready for the here and now at any given time. Um, The idea with Futures Command is to be ready for the future too. And that is not an easy task and that is not a simple task to execute. So it's it's a challenging place to be as well, but a very exciting one. Much of what the general order says that established Army Futures Command talks about the equipment, and the future force design that the Army needs in order to be effective. And AFC is also charged with trying to help push the envelope inside the Army to think critically and creatively about what we really need for the future. And a couple of the things that we like to say here at Futures Command is, if you think about a a young three, four, five-year-old today, and that individual perhaps enlisting or joining tomorrow's army. What Futures Command is all about right now is what does that person need to be successful 15, 20, 25 years down the road? And that's really how I describe what Futures Command means for the army. 
it's a great place to start our conversation. Thank you, David. And your title, uh, Chief Human Capital Officer, that, that title is significant. And can you just explain why that's the title and what the significance is of, of the specific wording that goes into that? Certainly. I, I think it's a it speaks to a lot of the theme that you probably will hear from me today about really trying to push the envelope inside the Army in a variety of ways. And the intentionality behind the title of Chief Human Capital Officer is probably twofold. One, in the private sector and in many uh, industries today, a, a human capital officer is a very known and well-recognized function. And it is really about the recognition of the importance of the talent inside of any organization and how critical that talent and being in the right place at the right time is to the overall success of, of the mission or the organization. And the human capital officer title being part of AFC's lexicon is somewhat new for the Army. I mean, most people would imagine that my title would have been something closer to a G1. Um, but the reality is those G1 functions still exist, and, and we still perform uh, that more traditional care and feeding and taking care of people that a, that a G1 function does. But what the human capital officer position is also charged with is that look to the future with respect to talent and really trying to set a course in a strategic direction for the command, and in this case, in some some ways for the Army, to think about future skill and talent. So I, I consider my job really illuminating for the Army in many ways, and certainly within AFC. Things that are going to be important and things that we need to be doing now to be prepared and to have the right skill set in the force in that future domain that we focus on. And so uh, let's focus on uh, maybe some folks out in our leader up audience, just the average army civilian out there working. How will army futures command affect that person and how will it affect their ability to do their job? That's a great question, David. Um, I, I think if AFC's experiment and all that we are charged with doing is successful. I think what you're going to see is this evolution over time of new equipment, new ways of thinking about our warfare constructs, um, new understanding of what the future of war might be and what the future operating environment might be. And therefore, with that understanding, is there new force design, is there new force structure, and certainly is there new equipment that's needed? And if you imagine that that starts to come to fruition and delivered in the hands of soldiers in a meaningful way, then every Army civilian is going to be affected in some way because new equipment demands new ways of training, new ways of testing, new ways of maintaining, new ways of acquiring, just to name a few. And so the evolution of modernizing our force, both with what we fight and also how we fight, um, is going to impact the totality of the Army. And I would argue that any Army civilian will have some feel from the impact of AFC uh, over the years. Now, I'll be the first to tell you, and, and many leaders here in the command share this view, um, this, is a, this is a long game for the Army. This is not a sprint, right? We are in a marathon here. We are constantly challenging ourselves with 
persistent modernization, meaning this is not a short burst, one and done mission. We've got to continually work towards this. And the scale and scope of what we require in this army is so big from a numbers perspective and from a demand of what the American people ask of us that we've got to continually and persistently be modernizing. And that's what AFC is all about. So when we start to really show those changes to the force, um, those people, Army civilians especially, who are charged with policy and enduring nature and maintaining and sustaining and training, um, you are going to see those new elements of the Army inculcated into your areas as well. And I think it's one of the most exciting pieces of of this whole uh, experiment that we're on. And so your background, ma'am, that maybe has prepared you for for what you're doing now uh, or has informed uh, what what your position is, just share with our Leader Up audience kind of your background in the Army, what kind of positions you've had, what roles you've had, and what which segment of the army that you've you've been associated with? Certainly, I think interestingly for perhaps some of your audience listening, um, I I would consider myself as having a somewhat atypical career, um, getting to the point that I'm at now. Um, I was an ROTC graduate out of Villanova University. Um, I was commissioned back when we had a logistics or before a, a logistics piece into a transportation corps. And I was on active duty for four years and then transitioned into a civilian role predominantly um, for the last basically 18 different year, uh, years since then. But the career trajectory for me um, kind of segued away from logistics fairly early on. And I've done a number of roles that amazingly all really do enable and support uh, the current role that I'm in. And it's funny if some people look at my resume and they see some of the jobs that I've done and it's hard to draw a a clean, clear career line through them. But what I would tell you is one of my biggest uh, lessons learned as a leader that that I'm sure we'll probably get into today is is being um, interested and willing to, to work in spaces that you might otherwise be unfamiliar or uncomfortable in. And I've made that, quite frankly, one of my guiding principles when it comes to uh, what's next for me. So I worked uh, the base realignment and closure program for Army Material Command in the uh, 2005 BRAC round, which was the biggest Army BRAC round in history and a very, very significant experience for me to understand the industrial base and, and probably more importantly, understand the dynamics of picking up and moving um, huge pieces of our workforce, both the physicality of what it takes to replicate those new uh, entities and new locations, but also the strategic impact of our our industrial base on our country and on the strategic politics that surround uh, where our industrial base is in relation to our nation and and our states. And from there, I had a number of jobs uh, in and around the Pentagon that were um, everything from managing some of the um, research and publications aspects of the Army to working in the former ITA organization, which is now known as the Joint Service Provider, 
where we delivered the IT and network capability to the Pentagon and to the NCR. And then also working with the administrative assistant to the Secretary of the Army in the functionality that keeps the Pentagon operating and and keeps uh, entities running with respect to uh, organizations like flight for senior leaders, uh, logistics in the Pentagon, um, space management and leasing and facilities, as well as um, FOIA and publications. So a real strange collection of functions, but very important functions to the community and to what it takes to, to run this army. And from there, I actually was asked to, to go over to Arlington National Cemetery during a time that uh, they were pretty much in crisis. So I spent some very significant time uh, with the cemetery while we built out the uh, data sets and the IT sets that are now publicly available on their websites uh, to really expose and regenerate for the Army a level of trust and confidence in the American people and their confidence in the Army to operate Arlington National Cemetery. And from there, I was back in the Pentagon in a variety of additional jobs and then um, followed that up with the superintendent position at the cemetery. And from there, I was asked to come down to AFC to try to stand up this headquarters and then also build out the human capital officer functionality uh, for AFC. And, And that's where I find myself today. So it's a, it's a very um, interesting path. It's not a very clear path, but so much of, of the, some of those key jobs that I just talked about, uh, I draw upon in today's, in today's job um, routinely and often and in very, very significant ways. And so what is the role of the Army civilian today? You've talked about things that you've done in the past, and we've, we've talked a little bit directly to our leader up audience about army futures command, but what, how do you see the role of army civilians today? You know, this is a, this is one of my favorite questions actually. Um, and one that I have a, a, perhaps a slightly different view on a lot of people when, when they get asked that question, their, their default setting is, well, the civilians are the continuity. Um, and, and they're the ones that, uh, really understand the nuances of things and and they keep everything going. Um, And they especially mitigate uh, when our uh, political appointees or our military leadership uh, rotate in and out. And I think there is certainly an element of truth to that. But I I take it a step further. And and I, I believe that Army civilians need to be as dedicated to building and improving in their organizations uh, as much as they are there to help provide some degree of stability and continuity. And I think some people have heard me talk about this and, and perhaps wonder if those two views are in conflict with each other. And I don't believe that they are. I think civilians are uniquely qualified and uniquely positioned to understand the challenges and the history behind their organizations, but they are also able to drive change and to drive to new solutions if they are influential and if they are credible and if they are 
thoughtful in what they bring to the table. And so I'm a big believer that Army civilians are crucial to the Army writ large. And I'm also a believer that we ought to be um, working continuously to not only uh, ensure the institution is is in good hands, but to also always be introspective about how we continue to take it to the next level, so to speak. And as, as I'm sure you know, uh, in 2019, when ADP 622 was published, the, the Army Civilian Corps Creed, the word leadership was added to that stability and continuity. And I think that's indicative of that mindset that you just espoused that Army civilians are not just the stability and the continuity, but they're also charged with providing leadership. And that's kind of what I'd like to hear you address next is why is leadership and leader development important for us as members of the Army Civilian Corps? I think you're spot on, especially with your your reference to the update to the creed. And I could not be more excited uh, when that happened and, and really hats off to the community for recognizing that. You know, every one of us has been at some point, I think, in their career, either um, part of a team, an individual contributor, or moving into that level of their career where they are now in charge of something, whether it be small or large. And, you know, I'm thinking about your audience listening to me today, and I'm, I'm thinking about how they would think about the addition of leadership into that creed and then really what it what is leadership to them and to an army civilian and i think we owe it to our nation who who quite frankly is our employer right and and we owe it to them to be constantly being good stewards of what they have entrusted us with and that means they are paying us to perform and they are entrusting us with a huge portion of our financial tax base in order to create a capability that our nation believes wholeheartedly in. And I think that really demands from us a real level of competence and a real level of credibility that if you are not a good leader, you are going to have a hard time uh, showing and delivering on. Because you have to be a good steward of what you've been trusted to manage. And good leaders are authentic and are real to the people around them. And they have to be able to show, especially as an Army civilian, what it means to persevere when things are tough, to get through difficult situations, and to continue to work to improve. Because that's really what we all need to do when we come to work every day, whether you're a civilian or not. And leadership at any level, whether it's formal or informal, is what most people would probably, I think, agree with me, is really what helps drive organizations to perform. And good leadership is what drives organizations to perform well, right? And there is a distinction there. There is a distinction of performance sort of the basics, I'm getting it done. It, it's, it's, a, it's a maybe a bare minimum or better, but it's just happening. Um, really good leadership at all levels, be it a small in, informal de facto team or all the way up to a, a senior executive or a general officer. 
Good leadership is the difference between getting the job done or getting the job done well. And that's why I think it's so crucial for Army civilians to have an eye on leadership because we are instrumental in making sure our organizations are doing it well and doing it better because we could easily sit back and just do it, right? But that's not what we're asked to do every day when we come to work by the American people. And I think we all have to keep our eye on that target and that goal. And leading at the level that, that you're at, uh, which, which I would consider to be at or close to the enterprise level, which is above specific units, not team leading, uh, but, but at, a, at a very macro level, leading at the enterprise level, what does that mean to you? Uh, to be a leader at the enterprise level? And how do you look at leadership at a level like that? The words that come to mind when I think about that question, David, have to do with relationships and have to do with credibility. My personal feeling is that when you get to very senior levels, um, whether you label it enterprise or not, but but that that description that you just gave of, of that more senior level of, of influence and leading. Um, you've got to have relationships with external partners because typically the issues that you are working and the problems that you're trying to solve and the, the drive that you should be pushing towards at that level is usually never solved unilaterally within your organization alone right? Because you are working at a level that is so much higher that the problems are cross-cutting and they involve many other stakeholders. And so building relationships across those boundaries and having a level of credibility with those partners becomes one of the biggest differentiators, in my opinion, towards leader success. Because you can be the smartest person in the room, right? But if people don't respect and want to work with you, they're going to find eight different ways to not do what you need them to do. And that's a little bit of human nature and a lot of reality when I make that statement. So my personal feeling is building true partnerships and being able to influence strategic stakeholders in ways that are influential and effective really comes down to your own credibility and your own uh, ability to follow through. And this is one of my uh, favorite questions that I'm going to ask you about today, and that is about the symbol of the senior executive service. Uh, What does that mean to you, that symbol and what, what is it? Explain to our leader up audience what it is and what it means to you, that, that symbol that represents the senior executive service. Well, I'll give you, <clears throat> excuse me, what the, what the um, kind of official word is on that. And it, it's a keystone, right? And it sits at the intersection of two arches. And, and if you uh, are familiar with that visual, you'll know that if that keystone isn't there, those two arches cannot sustain each other from from just being on their own and the whole thing collapses. And so the the concept behind uh, that symbol and the significance behind that symbol is that 
there is a keystone function that a senior executive is performing across the federal government, by the way. This is, of course, not unique to the DOD or Army. Um, but you are really bringing a level of um, competence and a level of understanding that is is really instrumental in making sure that the rest of the players on the team, in this case, the arch itself, um, can sustain itself and can remain upright and intact. And that's kind of the symbology behind the keystone itself. You know, if you if you extrapolate that out a little bit more with, with leadership and some of the things that we've been talking about, David, you know, you, you've got to think about senior executives uh, the same way you think about GOs, in my opinion. General officers um, are expected to, to bring certain competencies and, and certain um, critical eyes to problems and to be able to lead and drive organizations. And I personally believe that senior executives um, need to be able to do the same. So you, you may be evaluated slightly differently. You may be in a different um, system of performance management. You may have a different office that you report to. But the reality is you're a senior leader in the United States Army. And that means you have a significant, significant expectation to um, be doing the right thing always without fail, whether somebody's watching or not, being a role model for people and helping your organization continue to improve. And that means that you are also able to provide uh, the historic context for, say, the uh, political appointee who might be coming in because the administration has changed, um, or you're providing the background for a new general officer who's coming in on the next rotation. Um, but you are also then providing that leader who you should be partnering with, um, with ideas on where the organization can go next. And I really think that the partnership between the general officer or the political appointee and that senior executive is one of the most powerful partnerships that the Army has. And some people exploit it better than others. Um, the most powerful teams that I have seen or been part of are where you have a blending of the experience of that senior executive with the other senior leaders around them. And the organization can really thrive because let's face it, most of our organizations in many ways are, are a mix of mill and sieve. Now, I recognize perhaps not at the operational and the tactical level, but at the strategic level, um, it is absolutely a partnership of mill and sieve. And so having that senior executive um, being at the table with the general officer or with the appointee and having the interaction amongst each other uh, for both information and also for strategic guidance and, and strategic setting of goals, um, that's, that's really where I think it's the most powerful uh, potential for, for leadership uh, across the Army. So it's, it's a great question, David. Thanks. And I'd like to ask you about two kind of nuts and bolts uh, leadership topics that I used to hear a lot about uh, when I was in the classroom and I taught in the intermediate course for a long time. And those are folks at the 10, 11, and 12 level. And it, it was kind of a recurrent theme that they would express concern about delegation. And so I would just like to hear your thoughts about 
delegation, why it's important. Do you, do you practice it? Do you intentionally practice it? And uh, just to get your thoughts about that topic of delegation. Yeah, this is an interesting one for me because I think we have some cultural challenges in the army today that, that really creates some of the tension around this, this word delegation. You know, on the one hand, and especially if you do any sort of research and reading, you, you intuitively know that delegating um, is, is not just about, you know, pushing work to someone else. <laughs> in fact, it really isn't about that at all. Uh, delegating is really a form of empowerment. Delegating is a form of telling someone that I trust you and your judgment enough to execute this task. And, and I think we, we sometimes forget that that's really the intent behind delegation. I think it gets a little bit of a bad rap sometimes that, that um, you're, you're either micromanaging because you're not delegating or you're delegating, but it's really a way for you to push off responsibility that should otherwise be on your shoulders. You know, I like to think about delegation as, as an empowerment function. And that is a really important mental shift I believe, because if you think about it in that sense, as the senior leader, you have to then make a decision on, is this person ready? Do they have the skills to handle it? And is this an appropriate thing for me to be asking them to do? And that really challenges you as the leader to make those judgments first, have the time to make those judgments and then be able to communicate to the person or the team effectively that, that this is what I'm charging you with and this is what I trust you to be able to do. And I think the tyranny of the pace in which we operate in the Army can sometimes get in the way of that. And I think that's a lot of why you probably have heard a lot of frustration from especially mid-tier careerists about, you know, I, I, either I'm being delegated something that I don't think I should or I'm not being delegated and I wish I was. But the other thing that I think we, we struggle with in the Army is we have a tendency to, to, to take the Atlas approach, where the senior leader at the top is ultimately responsible for everything under the sun, right? That the, the commander it has commander's business, and it's all on the shoulders of the commander. And I think we do the same thing on the civilian side when we say the supervisor has every responsibility on their shoulders as the supervisor. And I think while there are reasons that that has happened, and, and some of them are very good intentional reasons, I also think that we are unrealistic about how much that really places um, in terms of a burden and a workload burden on leaders. And I think some of that uh, very significant expectation setting for those senior people, that supervisor of that civilian team or that commander of that organization or that senior executive in charge of that organization, they have so much on their, on their shoulders that they're carrying that delegation can sometimes take, take a backseat when it comes to doing it for the right reasons. I'd be the first to tell you that it's a, it's one of my weaknesses, right? It's one of my personal weaknesses. I have a tendency, just my personality, um, that if I can knock it out myself, uh, I'm, I'm going to just knock it out myself. And, and that's one of those things that 
leaders have to be cognizant of when they have blind spots and you have to intentionally work to not do that. I know that about myself because I was fortunate that I had some mentors throughout my career who pointed this out to me. And, and I'll be the first to tell you that you don't just solve certain problems. You have to practice good leadership skills, delegating to the right people, the right projects for the right reasons is, is a skill that has to be honed and it has to be worked routinely. And I think that's, that's the important piece to remember when you're in that mid-tier or at the senior level, making a good informed choice of when and how to delegate so that it is a form of empowerment and not any other view. Um, that's really, I think, what we all need to try to strive for. And, and that's really good self-awareness. And I, I really do appreciate you sharing that with our audience because uh, there's folks out there that that um, ha- have things that they need to develop. And uh, it's always good to hear uh, some of our senior leaders share things like that. Um, and it's one thing that I've learned is that if, if I've got an area that I want to work on, it's, it's always going to be a little bit of a challenge. I'm, I'm going to always have to kind of push myself to, to take that step, uh, regardless of the context. And I, I'd also like to ask you about another, a similar topic that I, I hear a lot about in, uh, in the classroom, and that's feedback. The role of feedback, is it valuable? Is it helpful? Is it useful? Uh, and is it is it useful in an organization in a large organization such as uh, Army Futures Command? David, I think feedback is extraordinarily helpful. I think the challenge with feedback is there's it's a two-way street and if both people involved don't understand their role, then feedback can very quickly go um, go sideways, to, to use a, a kind of a cliched phrase. What do I mean by that? You know, it is not inherently in our culture, especially in the Army, to admit weakness or unknowing or I think I screwed something up, right? We, we build a culture of take the hill and confidence and learn your trade craft and do it better than the person before you. And there's extraordinarily good reasons for why we do that. And, and I'm, I'm a product of that culture. But I'm also a realist about what that does in organizational uh, design and organizational behavior. And the reality is, and if you do any research and any reading on on leadership and organizational effectiveness, you'll know that organizations have to be made up of people who will get feedback in a positive way and take it for what it's meant to be and really try to try to make corrective behavior where where it needs to be. And in addition, somebody's got to have the skills to effectively give feedback. And that's where I think many of us struggle because there's not a lot of training and not a lot of emphasis out there on how to give constructive feedback, whether it's to a subordinate or a peer or this very elusive concept of managing up. 
where you're giving feedback to somebody who is above you in, in the leadership chain. And it is not usually, in my opinion, inherent in most people to know how to do that well. And so I think feedback is crucial, but it's also one of our our very significant Achilles heels because we don't teach people early on how to do it well. And there are amazing parts of our army now, um, especially with what TRADOC um, and the schoolhouse is really focusing on, trying to help people understand how to do that in a productive and non-threatening way. And then trying to help people who are in leadership positions or aspiring to be in leadership positions to help them understand that getting feedback is a good thing and should be embraced. And if you get some degree of negative feedback, you should say, thank you. And you should say, how do I feel about this? And what can I do to change that view of that person? Or if it's legitimate, of course. And so I think I think we as an organization and any organization really, but I think the army especially, is starting to have this dawn of enlightenment of the power of leaders being self-aware of where their strengths are and where they need to improve. And I think that's what you see in the new battalion commander assessment programs that are out there where people are getting 360 degree feedback and they're hearing from peers and subordinates and from senior people how they are perceived. And the reality is when you're a leader, the perception is really what it's about. Whether you are intentionally doing something or not, perception of the people around you is really what matters. Because if they perceive something wrong, they're still going to believe it because that's what it feels and looks like to them. And so the power of getting and giving good, honest feedback is crucial because you have to actually understand how to make yourself better and how to make yourself a more effective member of the team. And that's really, I think, why feedback is is something that comes up often and something that we, we continually have to work on, just like delegation, right? These things are practices. It's, it's kind of like you're, you're a doctor or a lawyer. You're a leadership practitioner. You don't ever actually get the gold star. <laughs> you, you'll do amazing things and you'll be successful. But I promise you, if you're a really good leader, you're always learning and you're always looking to improve. And so let's kind of go back a little bit. You talked earlier about uh, your your career in the Army with the Army, and I'd like to use the, the few uh, remaining moments that we have to hear about your path to becoming a member of the senior executive service, H- how you went about that, what, what choices you made, uh, and, and what kind of things you did to prepare you for where you are today. That's a great question. I, I get this pretty often with people that I mentor and, and people who are interested in learning more about the senior executive service and then learning about how to uh, work their way towards it. And I, I have some very specific things that I can share that I personally did. And I've already talked a little bit about some of the, the key jobs that I had uh, in my Army career that I think are, are very impactful and, and intersect closely with what I'm doing here today. 
but I'll give you some additional thoughts that I, I share pretty often on this very topic. I've already mentioned that my career path is not a traditional, very deep in one area type of career path. Uh, my career path has been one where I've made my career choices of what job to go after and what job uh, to, to do next based on whether or not it was a challenge. Was it, was it a difficult job? Was it going to be risky? Was it going to be hard? Was it going to be the type of job that other people probably would shy away from? Um, that's the type of job that I looked for um, basically for the last 18 years. Because that's the job that is probably going to give you the level of experience that you need to, to compete for senior executive service down the road. The other thing I looked for was, would this job give me additional experience and skill that I might not have today? And that really speaks to why so much of my career is different, right? I'm, I'm in a, a human capital practice now, but I have a, sl a small IT background. I have running a, a cemetery as a background. I have being the program manager for base realignment and closure. Very um, disparate looking missions, but things that I intentionally sought out in order to really broaden my experience base. And the third piece I would offer people is you've got to actually deliver. You have to be a performer, right? It is not just about being in the right place at the right time. It is about, did you get results and did you work hard and show those results to the organization that you are supporting? And those are the things that in my case, um, have helped and have been, quite frankly, very significant guiding principles that I have followed in my particular career. Is it a tough job? Is it going to give me a challenge? Is it going to stretch me in areas that I sh should absolutely learn and that will be complementary to my portfolio of experience? And then did I deliver in that capacity? And if you can make those type of choices throughout your career, what you'll find, I believe, is that when you get to a point of professional maturity and personal maturity to be ready to apply for SES positions, um, you will likely have had the level of experiences necessary to compete in that very uh, competitive market. Um, a lot of people that I see who are interested in working towards SES have not had the breadth and scope of jobs that allow them to write to the complexities of the application process. And so you've really got to make very intentional job choices. And there are job choices that have an element of professional risk in them, right? Because if you're taking the easy job, you're taking the one that's not going to have really impactful results and probably not going to have the level of responsibility um, that you need to be able to compete. So you have to know that if this is what you want to go after, there's an element of professional risk that you're taking, but you're doing it intentionally and knowingly, and you're delivering results. That's that's probably the, the, the three main elements that I would offer to your listeners if they're interested in, in going this route. 
And thank you for that, ma'am. I, I appreciate that. And I know our leader up audience uh, also appreciates it. And uh, I have three more questions for you and then we'll be complete. And these are our leader up top threes. And the first one is your top three leadership books that you would recommend to current or aspiring leaders. Hmm. Boy, that's, it's hard to pick three. <laughs> um, there, there are two books that I will share right off the bat that I, I always offer um, when asked this question because they really just resonated with me. Um, and again, the, these are just two. Um, so it's just take it for, for, for what it is. Um, I, I read Marshall Goldsmith's book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, about 15 years ago. And I reread it again um, last year. And it's just as good. And it's really about recognizing that as you move up in your career and you change things in your life structure, um, the things that made you successful early on are not necessarily the skills that are going to make you successful in the environment you might find yourself in in the future. And that seems intuitively obvious to some people, but I promise you it is not practiced routinely. A lot of people presume that because they were the best person at this job, they will therefore be the best person at the one above it or the two above it. And the reality is that is not necessarily the case. And so that book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There uh, by Goldsmith has been has been very impactful for me. And I've used it quite frequently with with some some mentoring that, that I do uh, routinely. The other one I would share, um, I love McChrystal's book, Team of Teams. I think um, that whole experiment and his whole approach and thinking on getting and maximizing the best out of the team around you is is just awesome. And so, you know, I I would offer that up to your listeners if, if you're interested and you haven't read McChrystal's book, Team of Teams, I would, I would highly recommend it. And there's one right now that is um, actually... I have an audio book and I haven't listened to it yet, so I'm not sure if it's that great, but I've been recommended to read The Art of Alignment by Beach. And that is really about how do you institutionally task organize and align your organizations for effectiveness, um, whether it be leveraging uh, a completely different uh, type of people or process within your organization or just thinking differently about getting things done, or being a more inclusive and diverse uh, type of leader. Um, I, I've been told that Art of Alignment is, is good. So that one I haven't read yet, but I'm, I'm interested and it's in my list of, of things to read. So David, I and hope that, that one's, helps. And that, that one sounds like exactly what uh, Army Futures Command, or at least part of it, of what Army Futures Command is focused on, that, that kind of alignment of of resources and, and procedures and techniques. You know, it, it's a great point. It really is. Um, we, we are all about helping the army um, align itself in order to do something as complex and challenging as modernizing the force. And it, it is all about how do you get uh, a strategic alignment in a, in a quote, quote, bureaucracy, end quote, that we are, but also in an organization with as strong a culture and a history as the Army has. So, yes, I couldn't agree with you more, David. And uh, the next top three is top three skills or competencies for leaders. 
Oh boy. You know, this one, there's probably a top 10 list really. Um, but I'll just hit on a couple that I think, uh, especially today are, are really important for, for leaders. And this has to do with how much is asked of the United States army at any given day by our country. Every single one of us, um, and, and certainly those that are listening to this podcast are challenged, I think, and, and are busy and we are, we are asked to do a lot for our nation. And so I think, uh, there's a, there's a resiliency aspect that I offer, um, as important in all leaders in the army because the pace and the pressure of what we're asked to do is significant and what's at stake for us and what's at stake for soldiers if we don't do our jobs well is literally the difference between life and death. And that in and of itself is a game changer for the rest of what I would say is the private sector, academia, nonprofit, you name it. We love to compare ourselves to the private sector, but when it really comes down to it, we are the entity whose true life is on the line. And that pressure and that pressure to do that with the stratification of who we are as a nation, as part of our army, creates a lot of challenges for people's mental well-being, their their physical well-being, their spiritual well-being. And so I think resiliency now more than ever for our leaders is crucial, especially with what we're demanding of them to be able to do day in, day out for, for years, quite frankly. The other thing I would offer is humility. Um, it, it speaks to what we were chatting about earlier about knowing where your blind spots are and being able to take feedback and give feedback. If you don't have a humility uh, ability in your lexicon, and that's not just in talk, but in walk as well, I promise you the people around you see through it. They do, right? And, and that's the, the third piece of this for me is authenticity. You can learn extraordinary amounts of information from your teams and from your peers and from those people around you. And you can grow technically and, 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 and progress strategically. But if you are not authentic and you are not a, a trusted partner, either with your team or inside your organization or with those stakeholders that you have to influence going forward, um, you are not going to be successful because people won't trust you and they won't go the extra mile to help bring the ball down the field for those people who like the football analogies. And so I just think knowing where your strengths are and being willing to work on them, if, if you have weaknesses, um, having the humility to be, uh, to be that type of person, always knowing that there's an element of mental resilience that is crucial for leaders, and then showing your true self, being that authentic person to the team, um, I, I would offer you as, as three, um, don't know if they're the top three, but they are three that right now with what I see inside our force, I think are very critical to people's success. And then the final uh, top three that we have is uh, top three leadership lessons learned. Mm. Surround yourself with, with good people and make yourself part of that equation. Um, don't be afraid to take the hard jobs and the risky jobs. 
and remember that it is all about the team, especially as a leader. If you are up there using the word I, you are probably wrong. It is we, it is us, it is the team. There is almost nothing that a a true leader in the army can do 100% independently by themselves that is of strategic importance. Um, The big stuff that matters gets done by teams and groups and organizations that are working in a common direction for a common goal. And so don't ever lose sight of those three elements. Uh, and Miss Kelly, I just want to thank you for your time today. You've been very gracious with uh, with your time, and uh, I know on behalf of our Leader Up audience, we appreciate uh, hearing from you and, and your your candor and displaying uh, that transparency that you just talked about. Uh, so, is is there anything that you'd like to say to our audience that that I haven't asked you about that that you'd like to share at this point? You know, I'm just very happy to have had the opportunity to record this with you. And, and I'm really excited for the audience of people who may choose to listen to it. And, and for those of you who are listening to it, I want to applaud you for taking some time to, to listen to other views, because that's essentially what you're doing here today, listening to me, getting, getting a, another perspective which really speaks to your willingness to be a lifelong learner and be open to other ideas and be interested in, in other perspectives. And if, if you are listening to this at some point in your career where you're considering moving into a leadership role, or maybe you're already in a leadership role and you're thinking and uh, conceptualizing about um, how well you're doing or how to do better, um, I applaud you for for reaching out and and spending the time through these programs, um, working on techniques and tools to help you bring it to the next level. And the complexity of what we do in the Army is such that uh, we will never uh, be without work. And we will always have more to get done than what we actually have hours in the day. So being effective at what you do and being effective as a leader is is even more important when you're in an organization that is asked to do as much as we are in the United States Army. And so thinking about some of those touch points that we we talked about today, being uh, true and real to people as a leader, being resilient and know uh, where your and your team's breaking points are so that you're not um, pushing people too far right? Knowing what that balance needs to be in order for people to come back and bring their A game the next day, as well as the day after it. You have to be the type of person who is cognizant of those around you and yourself in order to maintain the momentum that we've got to maintain. And and the last thing I would offer to your leaders, and this is perhaps a little bit of Army Futures Command speak, but it's really the reality of why we exist. Just remember that What we're doing in AFC is to help tomorrow's army never have to actually do what we ask it to do, which is to potentially go into conflict, right? The whole idea and premise 
is that we are so trained and equipped and ready that the deterrence level is such that we never find ourselves in combat again. Now, the reality is we've not been successful and that that does in fact happen. And so what are we doing as leaders today to ensure that those one and two and three-year-old kids right now have everything they need to be as ready as possible and prepared as possible for that future fight. And every one of you listening to this, believe it or not, has a level of play in that game, right? This is not solely an AFC thing. We've all got to have our eye on what it takes to be the strongest, most well-trained and equipped force and be good at what we do so that we never actually have to do it. And it's a really interesting place to be because the success criteria for the army is, is kind of don't ever have to do your job, <laughs> which is always fun to talk about. But that's really what it's about. And it's about making sure that we do what the American people need us to do and we do it to the best of our ability. And so for those of you who are taking time listening to this podcast uh, in it, with an eye towards improvement, and with an eye towards helping your teams be the best that they can be, I thank you for that. And I thank you for what you do for the Army each and every day. It's been a, a pleasure to spend a few minutes, uh, David, with you and, and with your audience. Thank you. And, and Ms. Kate Kelly, thank you also for, uh, for your time today. We, we certainly do appreciate it. And uh, Leader Up audience out there, thank you for listening. And please join us again next time for another edition of Leader Up. As always, if you have any questions or feedback or would like to learn more about our podcast, please check the description for our email and for our website. Thanks for listening.